2: Your refrigerator after a long day seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge the answer is no there's nothing better that's why when it's time to chill you choose Coors Light it's mountain cold refreshment made to chill Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind so that's why when you want to hit reset reach for a beer that's made to chill get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart Coors Brewing Company Golden Colorado And as always, celebrate. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, a brief history, the subway series, part two. Today we are brought to you by betonline.ag. With currently no sports, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. BetOnline still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. With their online casino, poker, and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. And if you're dying for some NFL action, they have live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, and more. It's all open 24 hours a day and all online. Go to betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your welcome bonus when you join today. Bet online, your online wagering solution. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go check that out. It's episode number 433. This is obviously part two of the Subway series covering the great New York City baseball rivalries between the Yankees, Giants, Dodgers, and Mets. Last episode, we started at the early 1900s of New York baseball and covered the Yankees-Giants rivalries in the 1920s and 30s. What was the first? Subway series. When did that actually happen? We got into Dem Bums from Brooklyn, the Dodgers finally joining the party in the 1940s. The Yankees' epic run, which could have been even better if it were not for World War II and the shakeup that happened in baseball during those years. And we left off at perhaps the pinnacle of New York baseball. 1951 and the few years that followed before it all suddenly came to an end. So how good was this era of baseball in New York? It's difficult to put into context because we haven't really seen anything like it since. For 10 straight years, the World Series was played in New York City. 1949 saw the Yankees beat the Dodgers. 1950, Yankees over Phillies. 1951, Yankees over Giants. 1952, Yankees over Dodgers. 1953, Yankees over Dodgers. That makes five championships in a row for the Yankees. That is a baseball record to this day. 1954, Giants over Indians. 1955, Dodgers over Yankees. 1956, Yankees over Dodgers. 1957, Braves over Yankees. 1958, Yankees over Braves. That ended 10 years of the World Series being played in New York City. One of those three teams making the World Series for a decade straight. And then in 1959 was the L.A. Dodgers over the White Sox. The L.A. Dodgers had just moved to L.A. the season before. So really, it's an extension of the New York baseball teams. But getting back to the Subway Series. After the Yankees beat the Giants in the 1951 World Series, it was all about the Yankees and Dodgers from then on out. The 1952 Series was another seven-gamer. All games except the second were close, and the Yankees had to win games six and seven at Ebbets Field to prevail. The Mick and Johnny Mize had monster series, but Billy Martin is credited with saving the series for the Yankees. Trailing by two runs in the bottom of the seventh inning of game seven, the Dodgers had the bases loaded and Jackie Robinson at the plate. He hit a high pop-up in the infield, and first baseman Joe Collins, defensive replacement Joe Collins, lost the ball in the sun and the wind. Billy Martin made a charging catch right next to the mound to end the inning. Three runners ready to lead away.
3: It's a high pop-up. Who's going to get it? Here comes Billy Martin digging hard, and he makes the catch at the left. It
2: still that effectively ended the chances for the Dodgers in that World Series, and that was Jackie Robinson's third World Series he had appeared in, and he had yet to perform on baseball's biggest stage. In that clip I just played, he was the one who popped up with the bases loaded, and he was hitting just 212 in 66 World Series at-bats to that point in his career. Obviously, he wasn't the only reason the Dodgers failed to win, and that they failed to beat the Yankees, but... He was at the center of a lot of criticism for much more important reasons, obviously, for breaking the color barrier and all of the stuff that went on with that. So much more important reasons than just failure in the World Series. But the Dodgers had an air of failure in the World Series, especially when it came to playing the Yankees. Robinson would hit 320 in the following World Series, however, but his team lost yet again. This is when Billy Martin's reputation of being a clutch player was really established. As if saving the 1952 World Series was not enough, he hit 500 and drove in eight runs in the 53 series, leading the Yankees to victory. As you can imagine, by this point, it was getting laughable for the Yankees. In 1941, 47, and 49, they beat the Dodgers. In 51, they beat the Giants. And in 52 and 53, they beat the Dodgers again. The Yankees won nine Subway Series in a row. They absolutely owned the city. Meanwhile, the Dodgers were on a great run in the National League, but wait till next year became the slogan for their suffering fans who just wanted a championship. And ever the victors, the Yankees had earned their reputation as those damn Yankees. The Yankees won so often that in 1954, Douglas Wallop wrote the novel The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant. It's a deal with the devil story where the main character, who's a lifetime Washington Senators fan, comes across a mysterious man named Mr. Applegate who offers to transform him into Joe Hardy, a baseball superstar who can salvage the Senators' season and overtake the Yankees. Now, the Senators didn't even win the pennant in 1954. The Indians won in the American League, but they lost to the Giants. This was the year of the Willie Mays' famous over-the-shoulder catch. But the Yankees were so dominant and so hated during this period that the book gained sort of a cult following. Them not making the World Series was a story. A big enough story where a book was written about it, and then that book was adapted into a Broadway musical called Damn Yankees in 1955 and a movie in 1958. I was going to play a clip of the movie trailer here, but it's honestly incoherent, so if you really want to see it, if you're dying to see it, go Google it and enjoy. I wasn't going to subject all the listeners to it, however. Then next year finally arrived for the Dodgers in 1955, and the most famous play from this series happened in game one.
3: With pinch batter Frank Keller at bat, Robinson dashes for the plate. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver, but Yogi Berra doesn't think so. And the fans will never forget the sight of Jackie Robinson hurrying for the plate on his daring steal.
2: You obviously know that Yogi Berra always contested that Jackie Robinson was out. It's impossible to tell from the video footage. I must have seen this thing a hundred times over the last week, and I still cannot tell. I need that classic slow-mo zoom-in shot, and then I need the umps to delineate over it for like five or ten minutes, and then maybe we'll finally have our answer. This was also the year the World Series MVP award was introduced. Brooklyn's lefty Johnny Padres won. Even though this was the first year of the official award, Sports Magazine had been awarding the World Series Most Outstanding Player for a few years to that point. The winner would get an automobile, so I guess some things never change. The Dodgers finally beat the Yankees. It was their first championship in franchise history and the only title they won while the team was in Brooklyn. I hate focusing on a series the Yankees lost, but this was monumental. The Dodgers earned their nickname, Dem Bums from Brooklyn, for a reason. They'd lost the championship seven times already, five at the hands to the Yankees alone. The Yankees were the Dodgers' white whale. The Yankees remained great into the mid-1960s, but this, this losing to the Dodgers, ended their near-invincibility streak. Since winning their first title in 1923, the Yankees were 16-2 in World Series prior to losing to the Dodgers in 53. Then, of the next eight World Series they would advance to in nine years, which in and of itself is another amazing feat, they would go just 4-4 in those eight World Series. 1955 was undoubtedly the high point for Dodgers fans. This is from New York World Telegram, reporting on the celebration and carnival atmosphere in Brooklyn after they won. I dare say Bob Moses is not likely now to impose the wishes of the people of Brooklyn as regards to the new ballpark Walter O'Malley wants to build at Flatbush and Atlantic Avenues. Now, Moses was a New York public official and O'Malley was the owner of the Dodgers. In retrospect, that is kind of sad to read because there is no way Dodgers and Giants fans knew what they had coming to them in the next few years. There would be one more glorious Subway Series matchup. A year later, the Yankees got their revenge, beating the Dodgers in the rematch. The Dodgers got out to a 2-0 series lead. Then the series changed thanks to the Yankees pitching. They rattled off five consecutive complete games, winning four of them to capture the title. And the highlight, of course, was Don Larson's Game 5 performance at Yankee Stadium. Larson is ready, gets the sign.
3: Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three!
2: By Don Larson. An interesting note about Larson's perfect game is that even though the stadium had lights and they played night games at this point, the World Series was always played in the afternoon. The first World Series night game actually was not until 1971, so this game was mid-afternoon, and because ticket demand was so great, the Yankees removed the batter's eye from center field, which would normally be there on day games. In the third inning, announcer Mel Allen had the camera show the right center field bleachers where the batter's eye normally would be. And he was explaining to the TV audience why it would be deceptive to hitters to not have that batter's eye. I found it fascinating because can you imagine if that happened today? Baseball fans today are very familiar with the concept of a batter's eye, but maybe in 1956, it wasn't common knowledge to everyone watching at home. So they're They're watching this perfect game happen and you've got the announcer saying, well, hey, it's going to be a little deceptive for hitters out there because it's a day game and there's a ton of people in center field. It's harder to pick up the ball. The Yankees even only managed five hits off Dodger starter Sal Magley, who also threw a complete game. And also Larson, he threw the perfect game. He had sort of an abbreviated windup to begin with that could have been deceptive. So the batter's eye distraction just compounded the issue for Dodgers hitters and allowed Darn Larson to really dominate. The video quality of Mel Allen talking that I found wasn't really that great, so I'm not going to play the clip, but if you just Google it, there's an SI article written about it, and you can check it out. Unfortunately, it all came to an end for the Dodgers and Giants in New York after the 1957 season when both teams fled for California. Each left for a different but really the same reason, money. National League owners voted unanimously to allow the moves to Los Angeles and San Francisco, but the condition was that they both or neither had to move. I'm speculating this is because if one left, the other would benefit disproportionately in terms of market share, but, but I'm not 100% sure on that. They had until the end of the 1957 season to decide. Neither team had a last hurrah in New York, though. The Dodgers finished 11 games out of the National League, and the Giants finished 26 games out. O'Malley, the Dodgers owner, wanted a new stadium, but more importantly, he wanted an entire city to himself, which is why he was in favor of the move, and Los Angeles offered him both. Now, while the Dodgers were always profitable, the Giants were up and down. Owner Horace Stoneman thought the move to San Fran would revitalize the team, and at their last home game, Giants PR man Gary Schumacher said, if all the people who will claim in the future that they were here today had actually turned out we wouldn't have been moving in the first place. The move was even more devastating for Brooklyn fans. Years later, Michael Shapiro, who is the author of The Last Good Season, Brooklyn, the Dodgers, and their final pennant race together, called the Dodgers the most local team in baseball. He said, all those teams, Giants, Yankees, Phillies, etc., represented a city. The Dodgers represented a fifth of the city, a borough. Rather than all of New York, like the New York Mets, the New York Mets are not the Queens Mets, they are the New York Mets. The Brooklyn Dodgers were Brooklyn's team, and I think that in itself set them apart, in good times and in bad. Many of the Dodgers players also lived in Brooklyn, and the neighborhood had a connection to them that was unlike any other because they would actually see the players walking around. Some of them even carpooled to Ebbets Field together. Shapiro added, The Dodgers somehow became the repository of all these highly romanticized and in some ways justified notions of what baseball was supposed to be. After the Dodgers left, Brooklyn sank. And really, the Brooklyn of today, the Brooklyn that is hot, stands in great contrast to the Brooklyn that I knew growing up in the 60s and 70s. With the Dodgers in LA and the Giants in San Fran, the Yankees were the only game in town until the Mets showed up in 1962. And another fun fact that I just never connected the dots on, the Mets' colors are Dodger Blue and Giant Orange in honor of the two franchises that left. In an alternate reality, had the team stayed, the Dodgers would have got their new stadium in Brooklyn, where the Barclays Center is today, and the Giants would have got a new stadium in Flushing, where Shea Stadium was eventually built for the Mets to coincide with the World's Fair. I've thought about what it would be like in the city. What would the baseball landscape in New York City be if there were still three teams? Would there be an appetite for that? Baseball today is far less popular than it was in the mid-1950s, but the Giants and Dodgers had such deep roots in New York. It's hard to imagine, first of all, that they ever left, and second, that they'd ever struggled to draw fans and get TV ratings. Then again, we did see the Yankees struggle to attract fans in the late 60s and early 70s, and then Steinbrenner revitalized the team, but in the 80s, they kind of fell off again. So, So I don't know. I don't know if three teams would work in today's market. The moves to California, though, truly were an end of an amazing era, and that was it for New York baseball rivalry until the 1990s. The Yankees would go on to play the Los Angeles Dodgers and San Francisco Giants in the World Series five total times between 1962 and 1981, going 3-2 and two overall. In 62 and 63, they played the Giants and Dodgers back-to-back in the World Series, rekindling that feel of the Yankees versus either the Dodgers or the Giants from the National League seemingly every year. But it wasn't the same. They were no longer crosstown rivals. The players were the same. The uniform said the same thing. But like everything in sports, what makes those years so great was the fans. And that just wasn't the same when they're separated by 3,000 miles of country. When they were all playing in New York, it mattered to a Yankees fan because their best friend next door could have been a Dodgers fan, or their father-in-law could have been a Giants fan. Everybody in the city had a rooting interest. When the teams left, so too did many of the fans. Without the fans, without the atmosphere, without the meaning, everything just was not the same. 40 years after the Dodgers and Giants left town and after 35 years of sharing a city, the Yankees and Mets finally played a game that mattered on June 16, 1997. Game one of the Subway Series is in the books, and at least for tonight, Mets fans can claim bragging rights to New York City. This one wasn't even close. Mets smoked the Yankees 6-0. The two teams would play exhibition games over the years, the Mayor's Cup game, which was an in-season exhibition that dated back to the Dodgers and Giants years, and obviously spring training each year. Steinbrenner tried to make the Mayor's Cup a big deal, but it was an exhibition, so players could only care so much. Before those interleague games in 97, David Cohn was quoted as saying, It's well documented that these games are important to our owner, as they should be. It's for the bragging rights of New York City. Steinbrenner could not stand living in the shadow of the Mets when they were the superior team in the 1980s. Even though the Yankees were the defending champs in 97, he still had to beat the team from Queens. George was psychotic about the spring training games, too. I read a story about Steinbrenner freaking out after one spring when Mike Griffith pitched poorly, causing the Yankees to lose to the Mets in Fort Lauderdale. Steinbrenner stood outside of his box and screamed, Mike Griffith has fooled us long enough! It's funny because in my mind, I can just read that sentence as Larry David saying those words as George Steinbrenner. Also, one time George and Billy Martin got into a fight, if you can imagine that, after the Yankees lost a spring game to the Mets. I mean, does it come as a shock to anybody that George was crazy about playing the Mets? He does not want to be second fiddle in his own city. So we know it was do or die to George Steinbrenner, but the players and coaches treated it like any other game. Fans, of course, wanted to win for the bragging rights that Cohn mentioned, but in 2000, the rivalry finally kicked into high gear.
3: The outfield straight away against Piazza, who's DHing in this game. The 0 1 pitch. We inside it, hit him. Piazza is hit by the pitch ball, and he is down on his back in the batter's box. I'm not sure exactly where it got him, but it might have gotten him in the helmet. And the trainer, Fred Hina, is out in Piazza having trouble opening his eyes.
2: The Clemens Piazza incident happened on July 8th in the night game of the first split stadium doubleheader.
3: Roger Clemens looking very upset, standing hands on knees in front of the mound. And Piazza has his eyes closed, trying to flutter them open as he draws attention from both trainers, Fred Hina and Scott Lawrence. And Roger Clemens looks extremely troubled as he walks back toward the mound. Piazza now up to a sitting position and holding his forehead. And Piazza hit. In the batting helmet by Roger Clemens, whom Piazza has dominated. And Piazza walks off into the Mets' dugout.
2: It was the turning point for the rivalry. It brought the tension up to an 11 and set the stage for their meeting three months later.
0: And the 3-1. Swung on a drill deep to right field. There it goes. See ya Into the upper deck. David Justice with a three-run home run. And the Yankees have come all the way back the four. Get your tokens ready. You might be boarding the subway.
3: It is official after 44 years, of two baseball teams playing in the Big Apple will meet in the Fall Classic. The
0: Subway Series is back. Fans could not be more excited. You know, Mets catcher Todd Pratt said before Tuesday's game, it would definitely be the hugest thing ever. Now, is there anything else
3: going on but the Subway Series? I don't think there, there can't be, right? It seems like the rest of the world has sort of been put aside. The real world no longer exists during, during this this bubble of the Subway Series. The Subway Series takes off in about an hour and a half is this city ready for it
2: you better believe it let's go yankees let's go, yankees, let's, go, yankees, let's, go
3: yankees, let's go this is a, a campaign promise that i made when i ran for mayor the first time i promised that there would
2: be a subway series and i've been dreaming about it throughout the 7 years that i'm the mayor because i feel like i can give to the people of the city some of the experiences that i had when i was a young boy when the yankees and the dodgers and the giants were in the world series some of those clips I just played are from the 2000 World Series film. Also in that film, Jeter said, I hear the Yankees fans telling me, you better not lose. Basically, take those three rings and throw them out the window. This is the one that matters. Now, I doubt that any fan actually said that to Jeter, so that's Jeter probably projecting, but he definitely felt a little bit of that hype. The World Series capped off the Yankees three-peat. They were the better team. They were the dynasty. But it was a lot closer of a series than 4-1 to one would indicate. The Yankees stole game one in extra innings thanks to numerous Mets mistakes. The biggest one being the Timo Perez not running on Todd Zeal's shot to left field. They almost blew a big 9th inning lead in Game 2. This was the Roger Clemens-Mike Piazza rematch game. Clemens threw the bat at Piazza in the first inning as if the moment needed any more attention. They lost Game 3 at Shea Stadium and they won close games, games four and five, to close it out. It was a great series, even though it only went five games. Now we have the Subway series every year. Even though they are regular season games, they do seem a little bit bigger. They've produced great drama and moments like Castillo dropping the ball or Gardner taking DeGrom deep at Citi Field. The games fall in the regular season category of like a Red Sox game or maybe an Astros game recently. In one sense, interleague play has made the rivalry better, If we didn't have interleague, then the 2000 World Series would not have had a three-month buildup. But then on the other hand, if the AL and NL teams only played in the World Series, then it would feel extra special. A common baseball discussion is, does anyone care about interleague play anymore? It's a moot point because with the current baseball alignment, there always has to be interleague play. There's 15 teams in each league, meaning that if you want to play a baseball game every day, an NL and an AL team has to play every day. Maybe if baseball goes through another expansion or realignment, they'll abolish it, but I doubt it. And that's it. We made it to the end. The Yankees have dominated the Subway Series overall, going 14-5 versus the Giants, Dodgers, and Mets franchises in World Series play. But in the Subway Series World Series, in other words, all New York World Series, they're 11-3, 6-1 versus the Dodgers, 4-2 against the Giants, and 1-0 against the Mets. Until the next Subway Series...